Well, welcome everyone. And uh, um, thank you for joining our first uh, data therapy session. I know a lot of us uh, are really dealing with some data anxiety here uh, and hoping that uh, my fellow uh, uh, therapists can uh, ease your pain a little bit. So welcome and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm, I'm, my name is Mike Lampa. I'm one of the advisors at uh, Great Data Minds and uh, um, just wanna let everybody know we are recording this session. So um, full disclosure, and we will be sending that recording out within uh, 24 hours of uh, finishing the session to each of you today. Um, during today's um, webinar, we are encouraging uh, questions. That's the primary focus of, of and intent and objective of this session. Um, so please drop them into the chat window. And uh, I've got uh, my Great data mine colleagues, Julie and Alexis, will be helping us monitor those questions and getting them served up to the panel so that we can have a good dialogue on that. Um, and also we, uh, we understand or probably surmise um, that uh, there's several of you that are just kicking around or are just getting started on your um, data ops journey. So we are offering um, what we call a prove it, which is a proof of value um, a mini program in partnership with Data Kitchen, um, where um, we will find um, a meaningful and valuable use case within your enterprise using your data and um, leverage the data ops principles and the Data Kitchen enabling technologies to prove out that value for you. Um, so that we can, at the end of that eight to 10 week program, demonstrate some value back to your organization. So uh, look for more of that to come. And if you are interested, please um, ping us after um, the session at info at greatdataminds.com. Um, today, we have my two esteemed therapists, uh, Dr. Fraser Crane, um, Chris Berg, uh, head chef, CEO and founder of Data Kitchen. Chris, thank you for joining us. Welcome. I'm Chris Berg and I'm listening. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, so uh, excited to talk uh, uh, data ops and, and data challenges. Excellent. And also with us, Jonathan Hodges, uh, a dear friend of Great Data Minds, longstanding friend and uh, vice president of data management and analytics at Workiva. Uh, welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, I can remember, you know, pretty, pretty frequently about being the, 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 the patient here, but I think I've learned a little bit. So maybe I can turn that around and share what I've learned and, uh, you know, sit in the therapist uh, seat a little bit today. That's awesome. Give it back, right? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right, uh, a couple, uh, uh, one more housekeeping item. If uh, you haven't already done so, if you put your um, view palette into gallery view, then you'll be able to see all three of us as we're bantering along. Um, all right, so with that, let's get the session started. Uh, we're on the clock, right? Uh, 45 minutes, 60 minutes, and then we get kicked out of here. Uh, so what is DataOps really? Uh, Chris, maybe, you know, can you like give us a level set so that some people that are just inquiring on it um, um, uh, can have a better feel. So. What do we mean by data apps when we're talking about it? Yeah, so there's <clears throat> there's kind of, I, I just shared one slide that's kind of definitional of, of data ops. And um, so if you look at uh, on the right-hand side, there's a diagram. Because I, I think most of all, it's a change in the process of work that we do to get value out of data. And so it's innately human, right? It's how we all work together with each other. And it has an intellectual heritage to it because there's, um, you know, in manufacturing, people learn to put cars together in a better way from craft manufacturing to mass manufacturing to sort of lean in the Toyota method and cars got better along the way. And um, people were able to have more different types of cars and more options on cars and the cars lasted longer. And the same thing in my career, I started off as a software engineer and it originally, I learned to ship software every six months and, I, and that was pretty good. Um, and so mm -hmm. along about 20 years ago, some um, men, mainly men sat down and wrote the Agile Manifesto in 2001 and that grew into a set of practices that are called DevOps. And I think all those are part of the heritage. And so, um, you know, what, what data ops means, I think really comes down to the sense of, um, 
and this is where the psychological com component comes in. And maybe it means agency in the sense of psychological agency that you are empowered to do things. And a lot of data and analytics organizations, um, and I know because I ran one for many years and, and, and still run one, um, feel uh, disempowered. They feel like they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And the rock is that the data that they get, or maybe the infrastructure that they run it on is, is to use a short word, can be crappy, can change. People forget data sets, the data changes, uh, is, has errors. And then the customers who expect data, they just want things right away. They want new insight. They want it to be perfect. They want it quick. And so you're caught between wanting to do things perhaps slow, so you don't make embarrassing errors, so you don't look bad, and also wanting to look good in front of the people that you're trying to influence. And some organizations end up giving up their agency and saying, okay, I don't want to do things. I'm going to have lots of process, lots of steps, and lots of slowness to solve that challenge. Um, and whereas other organizations go the opposite. They just take a ton of risk and do everything fast. Mm -hmm. So data ops is kind of the happy medium. Can you live between, can you have agency and live between going too slow to deliver new value to your customers or going too fast and taking a lot of risk? And so it's about rapid experimentation. It's about doing that in a way that you don't break things and have really good data quality, low errors. And it's about being able to collaborate between all the different sets of people in the organization. And then finally, getting analytic about the analytic work that you do. Can you measure your process? Can you measure the steps along the way? And so, um, Mike, how was that? I tried to get the psychology. I like that. There. Yeah, I like that. You know, I mean, and as you're explaining, you know, those diametrically opposed forces. Um, I mean, these problems have been here since I started doing analytics, um, starting around 96. Um, but it seems like it's getting more and more exasperated or the dynamic, the dynamics and the intensity of these diametrically opposed forces is increasing. Right? Yeah, I think so because people, there is more data to be had. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, you know, whatever there's pick your, pick your metric on the amount of data created in the world, or even look at your, com uh, your company, the amount of data sources that you have. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other sense is that, um, the world's sort of woken up that data isn't in, in a company. It isn't like furniture or, you know, your office lobby. It's not, it's actually a really important delivery or a mechanism to create competitive advantage and value. Yeah. And so back 10, 15 years ago when data was like furniture, okay, here's your charts and graphs going slow and, and, um, and was, it wasn't seen as an important practice. So now more and more people believe that data is, um, a source of competitive advantage. And so yep. uh, people want insight from it. Uh-oh. Is it, is it just me, Jonathan, or did Chris freeze? Oh, did I freeze for a second? I'm sorry. Yeah, you sure did. Yep. All right. Given that frozen moment, <laughs> Jonathan, why would I do it? You know, why or when do I know, you know, how do I know or when do I know I need some therapy or that and that data ops might be the cure to that? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, definitely, you know, as Chris was uh, taking us through what data ops means, uh, you know, a lot of that obviously resonates with me, but also brings back maybe some of the anxiety, you know, when some of that stuff didn't exist, you know, and, and I think that's, um, you know, I can remember plenty of those times, you know, because I've, I've also been in, in data management and analytics for several years, uh, you know, been running data teams um, for, for 10, 15 years. Uh, and nothing was worse uh, than rolling in uh, Monday morning and realizing, you know, uh, maybe all your ET, you had a bunch of ETL failures over the weekend. Uh, and none of the reports are really senior leadership dashboards are up to date. Uh, you're getting tons of emails, Slack messages, unhappy customers. Um, you know, and these, these failures are typically a result uh, of a lot of that manual work that's um, required to pull those reports, those dashboards, those analytics, and they can be, you know, fairly error prone, you know, and, and time consuming, uh, you know, so beyond sort of that, you know, reactionary mode or firefighting scenarios, 
it, it, it just slows down the delivery of value. You know, it could take weeks, months uh, to complete some of these requests. Um, you know, and, and data quality suffers uh, when stakeholders don't trust the data. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, how can you be data driven when these things take that long to turn around? You know, and so I can remember, you know, you know, it wasn't that long ago where I was stuck in those that, that mode where really it was just about trying to, you know, keep the dam from breaking. It was just more like putting your fingers here, trying to, and, and so you're doing so much of that that you're really not, you know, bringing that value or taking advantage right. of data that you have. And I think that's a major symptom, you know, where data ops can, you know, uh, definitely bring some of these uh, best practices and, and, and flip that around. You know, so a lot of what Chris was mentioning, I think, can hit this right on. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned the trust thing. Uh, boy, trying to get that back is incredibly hard, right? Once you, once you had that distrust seed planted, it grows, it, it's viral. Um, yeah, and then you also just, you feel bad about yourself and your team, right? You have a major data error and suddenly you walk into the lunchroom and everyone's sort of looking at you (laughs) (laughs) and you're like, Oh man, I screwed up. And you know, some organizations, they are, they're shame and blame organizations. Right. And they're going to, they're going to not let you forget it. And that's true. uh, You know, if you're the individual contributor who was part of it, or if you're the manager who was responsible for it, it's, it's just super embarrassing to have that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it's hard because data is a big, complicated, changing mess. And it's hard sometimes to know and, and that things are going to go wrong. Yet people demand perfection um, and they're intolerant of errors. And so it's, um, you know, like if you remember the Iowa Democratic Caucus and there was like a data error in reporting. And like, I, I just, I felt bad, not because, you know, for the team. This is like, oh my God, imagine having a data error and it's on the front page of the New York Times and it's your mm-hmm. fault. <laughs> right. And like you're like, oh my goodness. Uh so and and what happens with people is I, I think is that when that happens, you get fearful. You're like, I do not want to have this happen again. And, right. and you start to say, okay, how can I fix this? And what you start to do is, is layer in checks and balances and process and meetings. And like, that's very normal, right? Because you don't want to walk into the cafeteria and be embarrassed. Like who does? And so the the logical thing is to slow down, uh, check it better and make sure that everything's right and and delay delivering a value so you can make sure it's right. Mm -hmm. And so that's, um, you know, that's very realistic. And so the, the problem with that is that you end up having the other problem is that when you walk into the, ca- the cafeteria, now people are rolling their eyes at you because they're like, oh, yeah, I can't get anything out of that group. Everything takes four months, you know, and they're and they they think that you're scared. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you go from being an idiot to being a wimp and it's mm-hmm. just not fun. And so mm-hmm. the other opposite is, is hard, too. Uh, and so I think it's that's the, the real challenge. And I think in a lot of teams is, is you come in with high hopes of, of really helping the stakeholders in your organization get value from data. You get whacked a few times with data errors, you get defensive, and then you're kind of, you're caught in this sort of, really, it's really hard to, it's really a hard challenge for people. And I, I, I lived it. I had a boss who was, um, you know, I was running the data and analytics functions. He had a lot of ideas and he was intolerant of errors. And anytime I brought him something, he automatically thought it would take two hours. And I thought we were good. We we're going to say do it in two weeks, not two months. Mm-hmm. But like uh, living that life is not fun where you just can't win. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we all go to college. We all study, you know, hard things. And then you're, you have these people who are like, you know, they, they basically majored in partying at, <laughs> at the fraternity. You're like, man, I studied calculus and now you think I'm an idiot. <laughs> it's, it's like, makes my nerd, makes my nerd uh, brain feel bad. Cause like, yeah, I'm trying. Uh, so, I, I, <laughs> I've enjoyed the village idiot uh, moniker a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're the village idiot. And so how, how do you get around that? Like, how do you, cause that feeling is real. Right. And so how do you, and every data team has it because you're caught between the rock and the hard place. Mm-hmm. I got a, a question here from one of the, the folks on the call, guys. Um, what kind of adoption rate are we seeing in data apps, uh, specifically in the larger uh, enterprise? Um, um, well, there's, there, there's two answers. So yep. the, the knowledge of that you can resolve this conflict 
that you don't have to go slow um, or and and you can you can have low errors and you can have lots of rapid insight that you don't it's not a trade-off right on um, mm -hmm. that and and the fact that you can move quickly and not break things that idea is germinating and mm -hmm. I don't think it's at all standard operating procedure for organizations, right? Yep. That you can resolve this problem that you talk about is, and there are more and more believers coming in. And yeah. I don't think your average chief data officer believes that right now, honestly. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I went to SAFE certification last year and the bulb went off so bright on me when we talked about agile product delivery. And one of the key premises in there was DevOps. And when I looked at that, I said, that's data apps. Yeah. And that's a key to, to getting that pipeline really flowing. Right? So Jonathan, what brought about your journey? Well, I mean, I, I think it gets back to not wanting to show up in the lunchroom and people are laughing <laughs> and talking to you and all that stuff. I mean, definitely you don't want to feel bad. You don't want to, you don't want to have your team feel like they're not delivering value. Nothing's worse than that. You feel oh, like sure. you messed up or you're, you know, so it's really just trying to get into that. How do I get myself and my team in back in the place where we are delivering value, that we feel confident about the data that we're bringing to our different stakeholders or to the products that we're, we're developing for our, you know, uh, for, uh, customer facing folks. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think it's just enough of that times of getting burned that you say, hey, I've got to find a better way. Uh, and, you know, I know, as Chris has mentioned that, you know, data ops is taking off and getting much more traction, but you still have a lot of doubters. You still have a lot of folks, chief data officers, chief analytics officers who still don't necessarily see this yet, or maybe just not aware that there is a way to move fast and still deliver value without having all these you know, problems and getting laughed at in the lunchroom. So I think mm -hmm. that's, that's part of it. Uh, it. What I'll say is, you know, my past roles, it's been more about, um, you know, these tools weren't as mature, I think, as they are today. So you, you try to do a lot of the things, I think, conceptually that, that Chris has outlined. But what I'm really excited about is today is that the tools have now become a lot more mature where you can take advantage of it with even less lift. You know, it's, it was always made sense to, to instrument or try to have some test cases. But a lot of times you're trying to use maybe some tools that were meant for typical software development. So it's almost okay. like a square, you know, putting a, a square peg in a round hole. You know, it, it kind of works, but not really, right? You know, yeah. it's more focused on maybe infrastructure, CPU, disk, memory, and less on maybe the freshness of data or, or the quality. And that's really what's important to data teams. Um, you know, so I'm really excited about the advancements here. And, and within Wakiva, I, I want to take, you know, some of those past learnings from my past positions. But now I'm really excited that I'm going to be doing a POC with uh, Chris's Data Kitchen this quarter. You know, mm -hmm. I think he's brought a lot more capabilities that, you know, we might have had to do hand roll ourselves and take more time, even though we know it'd pay off over time, putting those types of instrumentation in place, even better if we don't have to do that at all. And we could take something off the shelf because, you know, even back to this, trying to make sure our, our teams are delivering value. It's around making sure we're focused on the growth related items for our business. Is this mm -hmm. quarter, is data ops? Uh, core to, to Workiva? I mean, I would argue, no, we need it. We, it's, it's critically important for us to, to deliver, but is that really around Workiva's mission? And if I could find something out there like a data kitchen or something out that, that fits that bill and my team doesn't have to spend months de uh, developing that, that's a win-win. Uh, and oh, so I'm a, really excited about how things are going. I love, uh, you, you triggered a thought in my head there is because you know, I've asked this sometimes with, with uh, different clients is like, are you a software development shop or are you a deliverer of product and service to your customers? You know, and you got to make that choice. You know, am I here to build software or am I here to create solutions quickly and products? Yeah. Um, so I'm picking up a couple threads. Um, one is I heard process come up a couple times in that, that whole notion of this sounds like it's a bit more than having a good enabling platform and a set of technical tools. Right? Am I sensing that right, guys? Yeah, I, th I think so. Because if you were, it's about the, the work process your team does, right? And if you're thinking that I'm going to get data ops and my VP of sales is going to yell at me by buying a tool and plugging it in, you're probably not going to be successful because of the psychological challenge that, mm -hmm. um, these really deep down fears of, of breaking things or going too slow. And, and how do you resolve that? 
And so I think if you start thinking about it as I've got to change the way my team works mm -hmm. in their work process is, is a better way. And also, cause I, I think in some organizations, what happens is you go into the lunchroom, you get beaten down, you invent a pro a sort of a mindset around process that you do. Like, here's my tasks, here's my workflow. This is my um, analytic development cycle. I've, you've documented it. It's set in stone. You have certain meetings and rituals you go through. And yeah, okay, it takes three months to get something new out. But that's my process. And what's your goal of your job? Well, my goal is to follow the process. Mm -hmm. if your goal, shifting your mindset from, your goal isn't to follow the steps in your project management charter. Your goal is to deliver value to your customer. Mm -hmm. that, that's the only that really matters, right? Um, and and doing it in a way that they get value and the data is, you know, the data is correct and the data can tell a story that changes the behavior of your stakeholders because that's what we're trying to do. And mm -hmm. so that's a really different mindset. And it's, I think it's better. Like, I think it's better to focus on value to your customer as the ultimate judge of success rather than I've fulfilled my steps in my analytic development cycle. Mm. But mm. it's harder because sometimes people don't like what you do <laughs> and, right. and you got to respond. And it's a sort more of a service or servant attitude. You're trying to help people and trying to and trying to help and see that if the data can really affect them. And mm. I think it, it's a better way to work to focus on value than focus on, you know, whatever set of word documents that you have in your development life cycle. But it's yeah. harder because you really have to start thinking um, thinking in a different way. So I got a question here from Elaine. How lean agile do you have to be in order to do data apps? Well, I, I can take that. So I think there's there's a couple aspects, right? There's the way in which you change how your team works. And there's different flavors of agile. And you go to, a, you know, you look up agile or Kanban or Scrum or Spotify or Scaled Agile, there's like books and consultants galore on how, how you should run your team, what kind of rituals you should you have, how, mm -hmm. how you want and tools to support that like Jira. And I think that's really important to do that. I tend to be less of a belief in, uh, I, I tend to be less doctrinaire about it saying you've got to follow Scrum and go get the Scrum book and do everything. I do tend to have more of a principles-based view where like there's, there is an agile manifesto. Um, and, or if you look at the data ops manifesto, you start following those ideas and then you adapt and change your process to it. And I think there's a lot to, uh, so I, I do think that, that that mindset and following those principles matter, but I'm less a believer in a particular methodology. I don't know, Jonathan, do you, are you a believer in a particular agile methodology? No, that resonates with me too. I, I think just, just like with Agile, you, you, you know, all businesses are different in, in how they operate. You need to meld that into what's going to work. So, so I'm with you. It's more about the principles and the outcomes, but like the nuts and bolts about exactly how you get there, that, that can change. And then that can, you know, be influenced by how your company thinks about things or how your team thinks about delivery. Because uh, you got to make it work and you got to make it where they're not going to reject this thing. If it's so different than what you have, you know, it's going to be very hard to, to start bringing those things in. And so maybe a lot of times it's more of an iterative process, figuring out where those biggest fires or those biggest pains are and start bringing some of this methodology. in. it doesn't have to be like an all or nothing. Just start, mm -hmm. you know, trying to layer it in where your problems are, be pragmatic about it uh, and, you know, see how far you want to take it. Because uh, but what I've seen is once you see a little bit of like what this thing can do and how you can speed up your efficiency and, and you know, again, not, not be uh, picked on in the lunchroom, it, you know, it just, just seems like, why wouldn't I do more of this? Why wouldn't I try to get more value and efficiency out of my teams? And, and that's the way I've seen it. And so I, I really haven't seen much pushback. You know, how many people wouldn't want to be more effective in their job, be able to say, hey, it's not just how many hours I'm working or chasing my tail with errors. I literally, you know, deployed five products this year that had, you know, growth in our revenue. You know, those, those are the better things I think to gravitate towards is the outcomes versus, you know, how you get there. But it's just great that a lot of, you know, really smart people have spent a lot of time thinking about this and how mm. you apply it in the organizations. And we're just standing on the, the shoulders of giants to, you know, we didn't come up with all that stuff, not invented here, but we, we reap the benefits either way. So it's, you know, it's great. It's a great time to be a data guy, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't as great. I can remember getting uh, the kick me sign and now I can yeah, get away from that a little bit more. It's great. 
I agree with that. It is, it is incredibly fun again. Um, and, and, you know, we're riding on a set of principles. I love the, you know, on the shoulders of giants. I mean, this stuff is time tested, right? You know, be, be having a, a mindset around being lean and agile and constantly, you know, relentless pursuit of improvement um, and the unwavering pursuit of economic uh, value that you want to generate. And I think just getting some of that instilled into our delivery teams and then enabling them with a, with a platform and just grow on it. And part of that relentless uh, improvement is not only in the continuous integration, continuous uh, uh, deployment pipelines themselves, the data pipelines, but it's in our execution of our programs, right? What can we do to improve that next time? Yeah. Um, how about stumbling box? Um, have, have, I'm sure you might have some uh, example or history or experience there. Oh, John. Yeah, I've got a bunch, and like, yeah, yeah you just talked about, um, you know, this idea of iterations, right? And and the problem with iterations is that number one, in, during each iteration, you may not know exactly the full extent of what you're building, mm -hmm. right? Because you may, because by definition, you're trying something. Right. And then second, when you try something, that means you're getting it wrong a part of the time. Right. You're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And so in some organizations, lack of perfection is a fatal flaw. Right. And, and presenting something that is 70 percent done um, as opposed to what you think is 100 percent done, according to the ind industry standards, is an opportunity for shame and blame as opposed to an mm -hmm. opportunity to improve. Well, so it, opportunity for innovation, too. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. yeah, innovation is messy in some ways. And um, if you can have your business partners, you can work with your business partners to say, look, I, here's my job. I got all this data. I'm not sure it's going to tell what you want. I got to build you something so you can see it so I can make sure that you, you know that it works. Mm -hmm. I want to do that in a week or two. It's probably not going to be perfect. Can you give me some feedback? And they're like, oh, I've never met a business user who when you praise it, when you Poison, when you when you posit that set of conditions to them, they don't disagree, mm -hmm. or they'd say, yeah. "Oh no, I want, I want, I want you to spend five months getting it perfect." Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, they all, they're business people, right? So they're like, "Oh, give me something sooner rather than later." And yeah, if it's not perfect, and you can repair that trust and mm -hmm. get over that sort of shame and blame. Yep, yep. And once, uh, because once happens, as you iterate, you iterate on the error rates and the quality of the data you iterate on the deliverable and it gets better and better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, so the shame and blame culture is a hard, is a hard barrier to uh, adopting agile and data ops principles. So, so there's several things that we can do with the data ops platforms, such as data kitchen. Um, we can automate um, the, the um, source code. Well, we get better control over our source code management. We can automate our builds more effectively so that we're, we're getting better repeatability and reliability. Um, we can automate the uh, deployment and provisioning of infrastructure as code kind of concept, especially important as we get into the self-service mode where citizen data scientists want a sandbox and they want a bunch of stuff in there uh, to play. Um, and then there's the automation of testing as what I'm seeing, right? Um, of those, where's the biggest impact, Jonathan, that you're anticipating? Um, where's the biggest value or the biggest lift uh, you're anticipating to see at Workiva? I mean, well, I'd probably say all of those, if you, but if you want to pick one of them, um, you know, I think I, even from just software development, I think people can, you know, gravitate towards why tests are important. Why do I have coverage about this whole thing? Because you think about, and I'm not putting down any of my software buddies, but I, I tend to say that analytics and, and data uh, infrastructure is more complicated in a lot of cases than your typical web server. You know, these other, when you have streaming data and you're worried about late arriving data, windowing, you know, all these complex cases of dropping events, you know, it's very easy to have failures, right? And then so mm -hmm. any one of those failures could now mean I have that kick me sign on my back that my dashboard is <laughs> wrong, <or everything's> <laughs> you know? And I don't want that. And it, it, so it almost ups the ante about how many things can fail because it's so complicated. Because 
you know, we talked about earlier, data is just growing at an exponential rate. So they've had to build these new systems just to even manage it, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these, you know, big streaming Kafka systems or Kinesis, and you got data coming all over the place, tons of throughput, and no more of this, hey, I, I want a daily report. I want hourly, minute, maybe even down to the seconds. Like this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, people are just wanting more and more, which just makes it more complicated. More things can go wrong. Um, so I, so I, I probably would gravitate to test coverage because, you know, in my software days, that, that was nice. I feel good about refactoring something, a really you know, complicated area. If I had test coverage, I didn't feel as nervous. But if I mm -hmm. did, I'm really nervous. Like, uh-oh, I just went through thousands of lines of code. You know, something's going to be wrong on the other end of that. This just makes you feel much you, at ease. You, that anxiety goes away a little bit because, hey, I did change all this, but I know each one of these stops along that pipeline, I have great instrumentation. I'm going to know really quickly whether that's gone south or not and way ahead of before my, you know, my boss or senior leadership can look at a report and it's wrong. So, so I think that's probably the first area where we're going to see a ton of value. Just making yeah. sure that whole thing is, is covered and we feel good about it. So now, uh, even though we've got that very complex data pipeline, now we feel awesome about, you know, the, the machine learning models that we're uh, training with the data science team or the, the dashboards that we're creating uh, or that we're getting in hands of our senior leadership. And then I just, you know, on the weekends, I'm watching football, maybe not Broncos these days, but, <laughs> it gets a little uh, but having more fun doing that than, you know, I don't have a pager anymore, but, you know, getting called on my cell phone or getting some kind of alert that something's gone wrong. And now I'm already dreading coming in Monday. That stuff kind of goes away when you have yeah. that coverage and just, just overall confidence on your operations at the end of the day. Yep. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. The worst case I saw, one guy described to me, he was in his, at his house, sitting on the edge of his bathtub with the door closed during his daughter's birthday party after and, and fixing oh. a data a bug and i'm like oh my god and like i've been there right I, I, and my wife for many years will give me these sort of dirty looks when i'd sneak off on saturday to try to fix something mm -hmm. you're like you know you're not really present for our kids and and like it's, it's true because like you're you do have this mental tax going on when you you don't prove in production that things are right you haven't observed your system you haven't tested and monitored it because and you're just and a lot of organizations are sort of outsourcing their testing, their QA to their business customers and stakeholders. Mm -hmm. you know, data flows through the system, hope it works. And you know, if I get yelled at, then I'll fix it fast. Mm -hmm. And that, there's gotta be a better way than, than mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so let's talk about the team structure a little bit. You know, the data ops team, what is an effective and efficient data ops team feel like and look like? Well, I guess I could, I could start with that. So I don't think it, for people who are doing um, data engineering or data science or data visualization or governance, I, I don't think it's, there, there's, it, it fundamentally changes how they do. I think if you're, if you're in charge of those people, what you should think about is how much time I want my organization to spend on building the factory as opposed to delivering cars. Mm -hmm. And so it's about a building a system in which you can work and with low errors and deliver value quickly. Mm -hmm. And that is, I, I think that most organizations should spend 20% of their effort on that. Mm -hmm. And so it's about automation and source code and infrastructure as code. It's about testing and monitoring. Um, it's about measurement of your process. Mm -hmm. And so it's a different perspective on the world in that, and I, I, the reason I say that is because I back, you know, in a previous life, I was a software engineering manager, right? And I managed teams of 20, 30, 40, 50 software engineers. And I had a team of 40 software engineers and we had one release engineer who was paid almost less than everyone else. And he's a great guy. He played the mandolin at parties. Um, <laughs> and, it, but you know, we all as engineers, we all sort of thought, eh, you know, he's, he's not that technical. And you play that forward now, and that role of a DevOps engineer is the, one of the higher paid, if not the highest paid role. And most companies have a staff of them, a team. Like my own company, our own software company, we got 25% of our staff is in DevOps. Because what are they doing? They're building the factory so the software developers can make features, get them into production quicker, mm. and do that with low errors. And so, 
that role of a data ops team is really about the perspective of we've got to invest in this. And maybe it's some of your data engineers time. I think there's a role of a, of a data ops engineer that's emerging to actually help do that. Mm -hmm. um, you could uh, say that man, I think everyone who works in data and analytics should write some tests, some automated tests, but perhaps you have automated testers. But it starts with that perspective. You've got to spend some time on this and, and investing in the factory so you can make cars like Toyota does is, is worth it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the other perspective is we all have that sort of thing on the back of our neck saying, okay, I got to get this next thing out for my customer. Mm -hmm. I got the next chart, the next data set, and you've got to make space in your, for your team to improve and iterate and refactor. And there's some rituals that they have to go through about, um, you know, looking at whether when you had a problem, how do you have a retrospective to, to fix it? And so mm -hmm. all that takes some time. And so it's less about the team structure, I think, than more about just putting some effort into it. Interesting. Jonathan, what, what, what does your data apps team look like? Yeah, I was going to add a little bit and actually, you know, definitely challenged a little bit by Chris's comments, I, you know, because right now we're, we're probably largely going to be leveraging, you know, more of our data ops and ML engineers. So data ops, or sorry, data engineers would be looking more at the data pipeline, you know, making sure data is moving through there nicely and, and instrumenting and putting the right test cases there where maybe the ML engineers are making sure that, um, you know, models are cleanly getting orchestrated through, you know, getting trained, getting validated, getting deployed. Uh, and just like Chris said, it's more about building a factory where some of these other users like our data scientists and business analysts can kind of do their thing and not have to think about all those other really complicated things like scale, security, uh, do I have model drift going on, you know, do I have any downtime when I deploy a new model, you know, all those concerns that I kind of want to take out of their, you know, world. But, you know, I hadn't thought as much about a data ops engineer, and that's really interesting because we have a team of SREs and DevOps guys sort of on the software engineering side, but we haven't really thought about that here and actually sounds like a really good idea. You know, I've some, learned some today myself. Uh, you yeah. know, as we think more about, and, and I guess as we get more into that uh, POC and looking at these in Workiva, we could start determining like how much of a, you know, how much work is there from a data ops perspective? And start getting that, is it that 20, 25% that Chris is talking about? And then from an efficiency standpoint, maybe we decide, hey, that maybe that makes sense to bring in a data ops or multiple data ops engineers that takes that away because, hey, Maybe that data engineer, that ML engineer has some other things that we want to put them on. So mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's definitely some food for thought. Um, yeah, it yeah, uh, gave me, gave me a brain. In jobs, you know, jobs on, on data ops engineer. And, and it's also just like, is it worthy? And like, and what do I mean by is it worthy? So as a technical person, and I, I you know, well, I used to write code up about three years ago, but like, um, you want to work on the cool stuff, right? You don't want to work on like uh and what I actually really like the whole DevOps change in software because it took stuff that was seen as like unworthy and made it worthy. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's the same thing we're trying to do with data ops. Take everyone has a process of releasing. Everyone does some testing. Everyone builds some environments to work in. We all do this. It's just kind of mm -hmm. like, eh, it's not that important. Eh, it's, not, it's not worthy, right? And the factory is not worthy of my attention. What's worthy of my attention is I got to tweak my algorithmic prediction by a quarter of a percentage. Yep. And I'm saying, well, I, I guess my perspective is a quarter percentage increase in some domains matters, but most doesn't. If you can actually um, be able to iterate faster, that's going to deliver value um, yep. and find errors quicker um, and not have increase your customer data trust. So building the factory has a lot of benefits. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm having that brain wrinkle too, Jonathan. It's no one, you know, uh, just the, that folk, that concept of I got to tend to the line in the factory and the capability of the factory producing my widgets um, in addition to producing those darn widgets. Because I was traditionally thinking, you know, a good cross-functional agile team should be, consist of data engineers, data architects, data stewards, um, somebody representing governance, all collaborating together to define what the characteristics of the data product and the outcome needs to be, and then make sure all that gets built in with data quality rules and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't, I didn't separate the guys running the factory and optimizing the factory. And, you know, and it's not that I'm separating it. I didn't think of data ops engineers as 
the factory engineers, the factory tuners. And I, I want to make sure I'm getting that right because I, I feel that was a pretty compelling point. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and because you're doing it, right? It's just a matter of making it, seeing its importance in if we talk about this major problem of, you know, I when I screw up, I'm embarrassed. And when my customer asks me to do things, I'm taking too long. And and the innate belief that like, I got to choose between those two. And mm -hmm. what data ops offers is that you don't have to make a choice. You can go fast on both or low errors and fast. And so, um, but it's not magic. You got to invest in something to make it happen. And so it's this perspective of like, okay, let's invest in cycle time. Let's invest in error rates, lowering error rates mm -hmm. and do that across all of our projects in a scalable way. And if you do that, um, you're, team is going to be better and you're freeing up their burden and it's not just scut work for the mandolin playing guy you know because uh, the best software teams the best engineers want to be in data ops right or, or want to be in devops right they want to do devops because it's cool problems mm -hmm. and it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting distributed systems and it's not just a dead-end career path and almost if you look at it some reports show DevOps engineers making more than sort of back-end or front-end software engineers. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, you know, right now the data scientists are the coolest people in data and analytics. And I get that. Like, I remember when Java programmers were the coolest people in the world. You did Java in 1999, you were doing the internet, you were cool. And like, you knew the secret magic. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I can tell you that's going to go away someday with data scientists. And my hope is that you know, for the last 10 years, the coolest people in software have been DevOps engineers. And I hope that someday, I think, I'm hoping that data ops engineers will become the cool kids in, in data and analytics because I think it's a, you know, and everyone does value. And, you know, I'm being a little facetious on cool and not cool, but if you know what I mean. So there's a lot of process um, reference here. Uh, you know, it's not, again, you know, I mentioned this earlier. There was also, you know, when you, when you look at the manifesto, there's a lot of principles worthy of adoption. And then there's print disciplines that should probably be put in place. Um, who typically leads that champion charge? I'm curious what Chris says. I mean, I can obviously comment with for Kiva, you know, I've been the one sort of leading that charge. Um, and maybe it's because folks need to get their hand burned a little bit before they realize the value. Um, but that's the way it's happened here. Uh, we, we've obviously realized in the company, realized obviously data is that almost like the new oil these days, right? It's, it's how I get competitive advantage, how I can get that little bit of an edge against somebody else. Um, so you want to do it right. You want to, you know, and I guess this is getting almost uh, cliche these days, but you want to treat data as an asset. You, you know, it's not just an, you know, an exhaust or sort of an after effect of your factory. No, it's another product. And it, there's so many things you can do with it. And the companies that do that the best are going to be ahead. And so I think I'm leading that charge, but as soon as I bring that up, nobody's disagreeing. They're like, well, you know, right, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so I haven't got a lot of pushback. It's more gonna be, all right, how, how, how is this gonna come in and make you more effective? And now, you know, maybe my roadmap's got a few more items on it that they're, they're happy about. And I, I think that's more of a discussion, but I know Chris has probably seen many different organizations. I'm kind of curious if there's other folks who are those champions other than sort of that, I'm not like the chief data officer or the chief, you know, analytics person. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it starts with having champions and starts with having people believe that you can, you know, that you have agency and you can fix this, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to live with it. Um, and so it, it, it depends in various parts of the organization. I think it can be an individual contributor, it can be a, it can be a, a director and, you know, if it's, and, and sometimes it is senior leaders, but, um, uh, organizations have different patterns in how they change. But I do mm -hmm. think having senior leadership sort of bought in, at least conceptually, mm -hmm. that you can try this. And maybe not, we're going to have everyone do it tomorrow. Maybe I'm going to try this on a small scale, I think is important. Um, and because I, I, I do think it, because it does have, to, it, it's about how you, the work process that you do. And, I, and now, uh, I don't know, I saw a question about if you're trying to get a senior chief data officer bought in, they want to think in business and they want to think in what the ROI is. And I actually see a question about what the biggest impact of the ROI with the automation of data ops. Mm -hmm. Do you think we should answer that question, Mike? Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, and I, I think Jonathan said it. It's like, suddenly I can get more things out of my backlog. <laughs> and like, suddenly my team is actually delivering more value. Um, and I, I think, in, and people are trusting the data more because it's quiet. You don't have major data issues every month. And those things are maybe, so in any analytic function, how do you judge ROI? Ultimate ROI is you've delivered insight to the organization, right? And so that, whether every day, the $100 billion data and analytic industry all says the same thing, let's deliver more insight, right? right. And, I and I think, um, uh, but if you look at it from an ROI standpoint, what you can do is say, you can look at, we look at ROI as its proxies on that you've got lower errors and errors have cost associated with them. You can assign a cost metric to it. Mm -hmm. And the amount of features you deliver means that your team is, is more productive, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and those kind of sort of cycle time and error rate metrics do end up in ROI. But any ROI in data and analytics in my mind is honestly a little bit fuzzy because at the end of the day, it's about insight, right? And, well, and yeah, and you have to have, you have to have the discipline, I think, as an enterprise when you're describing some kind of insight that you want to generate, you have to do the mapping and tracing to what's the quantifiable impact I'm going to have on the organization. If that insight informs me to make a decision, how do I say, how do I measure the fact that that decision had more value than the decision the day before without the analytic product? Yeah. And I, I think the process of getting insight from data is a bit of a random walk. And, you know, you just, you need to try, if you can try more things, you're inevitably going to bump into more value. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. to me, measuring the amount of backlog that you deploy, how fast you can deliver, uh, even things like net promoter score to your team are measures of success of a data ops transition. Right. And of course, then taking those and saying, okay, that one insight was worth, um, $100 million. So we're working with a company and they are starting their, 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 yeah, they're, they're doing well on their data ops trend. Uh, and they had to go back and have finance certify that this one change, this one insight was worth $75 million to the organization. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way to do it is to say, okay, we random walked, we found this insight, this insight was worth X. And if you mm -hmm. can deliver more insights, you're going to stumble inevitably on more, on more value. Jonathan, What's your experience at Workiva on, on, on monetizing and objectively measuring value yeah. in the analytics? I mean, it, it, it's definitely like Chris says, it's a, it's a little tricky sometimes to, to quantify this, you know, but I really like some of the metrics he's calling out because it's true. I mean, it, that's really more your throughput and, le and less chasing your tail around about why some chart's wrong or why some dashboard's wrong. You can be more focused on those growth-related items. Um, and I think also... You know, obviously we've gone through that whole transformation where storage is cheap now. You know, back in the day, old school days, you had to worry about each field and what I can store in a warehouse. You know, that, that's kind of gone now. But now, so now I'm okay to capture or try to capture as much data as I can because storage is cheap. But then, wow, now that makes it really complex. And so a lot of what we've tried to do, you know, kind of to the random walk example, you know, really trying to get an understanding of our customers on our SaaS platform. And so not just the data that they're persisting, but literally, what are they doing? How are they interacting with this platform, which could be tons of data, you know, that clickstream behavioral data set, which is massive. And for that to be very valuable, you got to figure out how do I take that and capture it and have it an accurate representation of somebody's session. So I can try to optimize and bring that back, you know, as value. So we just came out recently with Wakiva as a new strategy about building an intelligent platform. And so what that means is we need to know a lot about what people are doing and what's not working so we can recommend what is working, what is better outcomes. So try to make it a much more effective, efficient platform. And it takes data to do that. And so that's where I see the value coming from Wakiva is having an operation that can harvest sort of all that data happening in the platform take it, come in with, you know, talented data team, make some new products, some new insights and bring it back. It's almost like a, this nice life cycle where data gets created in the platform. We take it, do some nice, you know, interesting things. Maybe we're creating machine learning models, you know, aggregating things for nice, you know, dashboards or charts, and then bringing that back as, as value to, to recommending new actions that are going to drive better outcomes for our customers. So it's all around that cycle of, 
making sure we don't drop things along the way that we mm-hmm. don't screw up because again, people don't, it's very easy to lose trust. It's hard to gain it. And so you could have, you know, have five, 10, 15 things go great. One failure, all of a sudden, oh, I don't know about Jonathan. What's going on over there? Uh, <laughs> the cafeteria people, gets quiet again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought I got up past that, but no, you know, I, I had another failure and hey, I'm right back in the doghouse. So I think it's, the value is just making sure, hey, that I've scaled up to that and I can keep going and I can keep at that same level and that same pace and I'm not worried about the failures and I'm just moving quickly and showing that same things that brought software to be agile, to bring that mindset and practice uh, to the data folks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Cause we are building software products that produce yeah. products. Yep. yep. All right. So we got a, this is a uh, kind of a fun question here, uh, Chris, and this one's for you from Carlos. Uh, Want to know how you feel about IBM hijacking data apps label for everything data. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> So what's interesting is I've been talking about data ops now for like six years, right? And I, I, my company's name is Data Kitchen. We wore like, like five years ago, we went to conferences, wore chef's hats and jackets and talked data ops. And people just thought we were weird, aliens. They're like, data what? And like, I would spend five minutes explaining the idea to people. And, and I thought I was a good explainer and people weren't getting it. And every once in a while, somebody with a software background would stumble by their booth five years ago. And I'd go through my explanation and then I'd ask their background and I'd say, oh yeah, we're, we're just doing sort of, we're trying to apply DevOps principles to data. And they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. What do you mean? We're not doing that already? Right. <laughs> and so in answering that question, you know, I'm happy that people are talking about data ops, right? Because my perspective is just, feeling like an alien from another planet. So the fact that um, Hitachi Ventar or IBM are using the term data ops, that, that's good because the market is kind of uh, reacting to it's a thing. Um, mm-hmm. The engineer in me is like, I want a very precise definition of what data ops is. So, you know, uh, uh, but I, I'm glad that everyone's talking. We were actually partnering with IBM. And so they've got a, you know, they, they're, they're bought into it. And I think every organization is to some extent is, um, you know, and, and this is technology marketing, right? You have a term and it's mm. like a gas and inflates to fill the available space. Like, don't you remember when big data met like parallel queries on cheap disks? Yep. And then big data became everything. It's like, okay, what's my Excel, my Excel spreadsheet? Well, I'm doing some big data here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, it's technology marketing. It always like inflates to cover everything. <laughs> and and so, I'm also seeing this last mile evolution and it's got its own term now, machine learning apps, which is ex- you know, extending the data pipelines because I have to do feature extraction and build testing data sets and training data sets and all that. What's your guys' sense on it being a separate thing or is it? Well, I, there's different opinions at different analyst groups about whether it's data ops or ML ops or they're both one thing or they're different. Um, you know, my, my feeling is whatever you call it, the principles are the same. Mm. And at the end of the day, it's a model, it's a data transformation, it's a visualization, it's all code or config that's acting upon data. And so, um, you know, everyone's work process to do data, to do data science, to do um, self-service BI, they're all very different. And yep. how we collaborate across all these teams, I think is incredibly important. But I'm glad that they're talking about it, right? Because yep. I think we, we need to talk about it. And I think there's a whole... Um, you know, we had a very popular webinar on data GovOps, which is mm. data governance operations or data governance as code. And so um, we're contributing to the pollution of the putting the ops suffix on any word out there. It's marketing <laughs> ops now. <laughs> Biz ops, they call it. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's cool. <laughs> the ops term is putting an ops on the end of it yeah. makes it good. <laughs> What's your, J- Jonathan, you guys are starting to... Um play around with, with some predictive work, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree with Chris, you know, who cares what we call it, right? I mean, there's slightly different paradigms with data scientists versus maybe data engineers or business analysts creating dashboards. So there are different things they got to work with, different tools. Um, but I, I see the, the need is just the same, right? It's critically important, um, you know, now that you have more of those things that are required for products or for business intelligence. Uh, and I think just recently I saw something where I, I believe a recent stat that said, Maybe it was a nine out of 10 machine learning models don't make it to production. No. Uh, and when we talk about what Chris was saying earlier, you know, these are kind of the cool kids right now and they're getting a cool salary. Uh, do you really want to see 
not a lot of value from those guys, you know, getting into production, probably not, you know, that's a lot of value left on the table, you know, so making sure you've got that well old machine in terms of your machine learning pipeline, you know, that can train, get access to high quality data, because you kind of see none of these are by itself, you can't just have ML ops without your data ops, you need that quality Mm -hmm. data. So I kind of see, you know, whether you call it the same thing or not, they're, they're together, and they have, Mm -hmm. you know, they depend on each other. So, um, you know, getting that, you know, firm orchestration of, you know, all those complicated DAGs that train models, you know, cross-validation, you know, precision, recall, accuracy, all that kind of stuff. And then now how do I deploy it, you know, blue-green, so I can't have any downtime. I need to test, is it better than the model that's out there? So there's a lot of concerns and I've seen it firsthand how problematic that is if you don't have that automated and you're having to manually kind of do these things and and, you know, we're not necessarily Google or Facebook. We're definitely not Google or Facebook. We've got an army of these folks. We've got, you know, a small team, smallish team that, you know, any amount of this type of overhead, you know, each new feature they put out, you know, think of that. that. That adds more and more overhead to them to doing their job. And all of a sudden, now all you're doing is supporting what's out there and not doing anything new. So I think to scale your team and it, it, it's just critical. It's not even optional anymore. In my, in my opinion, to be successful with the exponential data growth, you got to do it a different way. And, and this, this is, in my opinion, you know, the best way that's out there right now. Yeah. Yeah. I so agree. So my sense is, and I've been kind of putting this out there. Um, I believe the, the more predictive analytics workloads are the new table stakes. If you're not doing it and you're not doing it soon, you, you are going to start eating dust. Um, I'm curious if you guys agree, and if so, when do you think it is going to be mainstream table stake? Well, I'll, I'll maybe take first. I mean, I feel like it already is in a lot of cases table stakes. You got all these auto machine, auto, automated machine learning things out there, or I can just roll out. Maybe I'm on Google, AWS, or Azure. They got all these cognitive services. You know, I can do image recognition. I can do all this stuff. And I didn't. I don't. I, I'm not a PhD. I don't know how to train models, and so all that's available at your fingertips. There's obviously gotchas with that. You know, you need to have some folks make sure that's valid or not. But it, it's getting close to where you have this data democratization, where you're getting business intelligence and things in you know, people's hands that now you're almost going to see this machine learning democratization where folks are doing some of those things at their desk and they don't know how to code. You're going to see more and more of that stuff happening. So I agree. I mean, when you when you think about go, almost anything you deal with today, there's there's some kind of machine learning model about some of that stuff. No, no matter what, you're obviously Google and search engines and stuff or email, you know, now you got Google telling you if you should, I, you know, unsubscribe to this, you know, you got all these things making your life better. It's everywhere. It literally is. And so I agree for the folks that are going to continue to compete and win, you got to have this. Uh, And if you don't, you are, like you said, going to start eating dust and I don't, I'm not going to, you know, stay up what date it's going to be this or that, but you know, it's, it's, it's pretty high time. I know in my, my vertical, it's, you know, past time, you know, FinTech, Folks are definitely needing this in all different parts of our areas. And I, I, I would be hard pressed to find a domain or an area that isn't using machine learning or couldn't be disrupted by machine learning. Yep. Thank you, Jonathan. What do you think, Chris? What do I think? Um, well, I think one thing <laughs> yeah. that Jonathan said is that like, uh, there's almost, we're getting two classes of data citizens. Like I think the tools are so good that like the self-service machine learning, self-service data prep, self-service BI, that, that gates out. Like the tools are powerful and, and you don't have to have a PhD to do it, right? Yeah. And on the other hand, there's a class of code-driven tools in Python or SQL where more technical people are doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they're, I mean, the algorithms that operate on the data are the same, whether they're written in Python or whether they're running in an auto ML platform, right? So the, the math is the same. It's just they're different classes of people doing it. and I think that that is a good thing, right? Because it enables, um, but the challenge is that your business customer sits at the end of that value chain. You may have the centralized code-driven people and the decentralized self-service people. Maybe maybe some are doing data, maybe some are doing machine learning, maybe it's mixed between the two, but your your business customer sees the end of the value chain. Mm -hmm. And if something goes wrong, they're going to yell at everybody. (laughs) <laughs> and so, uh, and uh, more likely that the IT-ish side is going to get blamed than the self-service side. Yep. You know, yep. Just what I've seen. And so you've got to make that value chain work. And I think it's good. And I think people are getting more 
Um, the closer you're to the business, the more you do it, but there's also things that have to be more centralized and uh, handled in, uh, you know, in a more code-driven way. So how do we live in that world where mm -hmm. um, you can do a lot of work from your desktop and yep. you can create a lot of things, yet you want that to fit in you, they, that has that same problem of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do you deliver high quality? How do you roll it out to production? Mm -hmm. um, yep. And how do you get, because the people who are working directly with customers may be doing self-service BI, self-service data science. They don't want to deal with production. They just want to uh, create insight. They want to create a new hypothesis, test yeah. it, and then turn it over. Yeah. So you guys have given us a ton of insight as to the value proposition and the capabilities, you know, that an enterprise can uh, realize as a result of starting to adopt a data ops mindset and platform. But one last question I have is what, where's the barrier to entry? What's the barrier to adoption of data ops? What is it that people need to step back and say, is that really a barrier? Um, what's keeping us? What's, what, what, what's the pushback? Well, I, I, I think, I think back to my experience in 2006 and seven when we had problems and you know, with the data was late, I was being embarrassed. And the, um, the first thing I did is sat down and had a quality circle where we kept a spreadsheet of every one of our errors that we had every week. And every two or three weeks, we'd look at it and say, is there a pattern? Can we fix one of these things so it doesn't happen again? Mm -hmm. And so to me, one of the first things that you should do is data ops is you should just start doing it. Like you want low errors. Well, count your errors and start fixing them, <laughs> find patterns and fix them. You know, mm -hmm. just think about your factory and you can. Um, uh, and I think that mindset of paying attention to it and, and trying to improve it and seeing it has value, you can start quite small and, you know, you can put your, source code in a source code repository, you can start having retrospectives, you can start having quality circles. All these things don't require any uh, effort. It just requires some, some leadership and some, you know, some time. And also some dealing with the psychology of, of, of people's, um, you know, cause sometimes I felt in that transformation, like I was the group therapist because people have been burned so many times. They're like, you know, they, they were just thought, thought a quality circle meant an oppor another opportunity to get yelled at instead <laughs> of an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, it's a similar uh, experience, you know, I think with anything, I mean, data ops is like it, you know, start small, iterate on it, see if it makes sense for your organization. But I really like what Chris is saying, you know, it starts with quantifying your failures, right? How big of a problem is it? You, you know, once you start actually putting a number against that and how much time is my team going off and chasing their tails with this, then you can say, well, hey, this is how big of a problem I have right now <laughs> that I want to go away. And I think that's when you make that decision, is it worth, you know, hey, do, I, do I want to live like this forever? Or is there a better way? And I think there is. You know, so let's go do it. And like anything else, take it in chunks. But I think, you know, as you do it, you'll just say, wow, I'm not doing this everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you count how much time people spend on, and Gartner's got an estimate on this, how much time do people actually in a data analytic team spend on creating new insight versus just dealing with stuff? Mm -hmm. And you'd be shocked at how much time people spend just dealing with stuff and having meetings and um, handling the chaos of when, you know, the VP finds something wrong. And so even if you're just getting data on that, uh, you, you're not going to be happy uh, with what you see. Yep. Yeah. The, one of the, one of the uh, uh, statistics I saw research results I saw from Gartner was about 21% of a data scientist's time is spent doing evaluated work. Yep. Yeah. So it's 80% is not. Right. Yeah, it's funny how everything comes coming up back to the 80-20. Right? Um, <laughs> all right. Um, final thoughts from each of my esteemed therapists. Uh, well, I actually, I, I think the emotional part of this cannot be um, uh, put down. And, and because I do think this is, um, it's very... Uh, People, everyone wants to do well at your job. If you're not doing well at your job, um, you know, in some ways data ops is saying there's a path forward, but also shining a light on it. So sometimes just 
listening to people and and talking about the problems is and just saying it and talking about the problems in a, in a way is is a, is a good thing and so therapy is not a bad way to start data ops either just have your own data ops therapy just start talking about the problems mm-hmm. and and don't put any like you suck it's your fault <laughs> no no that that mindset has to change yeah. it's got to be full transparency we learn from things that we discover yeah yeah yeah, I mean, um, yeah, even today, you know, I think I've, I've learned a whole lot uh, from, from what Chris has been mentioning today and, and changed my way of thinking. You know, I definitely got some good nuggets. Definitely the data ops engineer is going to resonate with me to, to think how I bring that thought back to, to Workiva. Um, you know, like, so like Chris is saying, just talking about, it, you know, just having this conversation today. Um, you know, I think I've, you know, whether it's osmosis or just being here, I feel like I've, I've got a little bit better uh, understanding of the, this topic, even though I thought, hey, I know what data ops is, and, and I know it's important enough that I'm a big initiative at Wakiva, but I, I actually even see more and more places where this brings value. So if anything, it's just good to talk it out, you know, get get the things off your chest, just like a good therapy yeah. session, um, <laughs> walk out of there with a smile. Yeah, there you go. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. And all the folks out there that sent in questions, I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. And if you're interested and do want to approve it, uh, reach out to info at greatdataminds.com and uh, we'll get just set up and pursue it with you. And everyone have a great uh, Tuesday afternoon and we'll see you soon. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, guys. All right.